As Americans, we are obsessed with youth. All the latest plastic surgery procedures attempt to enable us to look like we did on our early 20s in the bloom of strength and vitality. But no matter how many tucks your doctor takes, eventually age wins. Like other quests for the fountain of youth, modern plastic surgery is not going to provide the magic potion that will make you look young forever. But there is a true fountain of youth that you can drink from without charge. And today on Truth Encounter, we are going to reveal where it is. In today's study, let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 and following, where Jesus himself promises to quench our thirst with the water of life. Now let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he introduces this lesson titled, Get a Drink from the Fountain of Youth, with some of the wild alternatives sold through the high-gloss magazines. Mary has a, a magazine that she gets periodically. I don't need that magazine, but Mary does. And I was looking through it yesterday. It had Janet Lee. Remember Janet Lee from Psycho? She was that incredibly beautiful blonde. And, and the basic idea is that she looks exactly like she looked when she was a famous actor about 150 years ago, an actress. As I read through that magazine, it's incredible. I mean, they have pills you can take and creams you can put on and sprays you can spray and just about every uh, herb you can find. And, and the basic idea is that you can be healthy and happy and beautiful forever and ever and ever and ever. Longevity. We all want to have that. At Ponce de Leon, went to Florida. What was he looking for? The fountain of youth. Every one of us want to live young forever. In fact, our American culture worships youth. And the basic idea is if you ever get to your mid-20s, I mean, you're beginning to push the age barrier and you're beginning to, to creep into that zone where you're not going to be able to walk anymore and you're not going to be able to hear anymore. And our culture is just scared to death of this thing called aging. These last couple chapters of the Bible are strategic because they're laying out for us what our heavenly daddy really wants to underscore in our thinking. And he's giving us a vision in Revelation 21 of this eternal city. And we're going to learn next week about that holy city. We're going to find out that, that all the beautiful minerals and all the incredible gems and just all the incredible descriptions of a beautiful city can't begin to describe what you're going to be enjoying as the children of God forever and ever. But John, as he talks to us about this holy city, tells us about some of the streams of that city. And in our text today, if you pick it up, it says in uh, verse 5, it says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said to John, I want you to write this down because these words are trustworthy, they're dependable and true. Then the one from the throne said, he said to me, it is done. It stands completed. It is accomplished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now look at this. To him who is thirsty, to anyone who is thirsty, I will give to drink freely, without cost. It won't cost you a dime. Without cost from the spring of the water of life. There's the fountain of eternal youth. This is an incredible passage. The Lord God of all of creation is telling us 
that if you want to drink from the fountain of life, if you want to find that spring that Ponce de Leon never found, and it's amazing in our American culture, we still go and retire in Florida. We think that the nice warm air and the nice ocean breezes will somehow rekindle our youth. And so many of my friends have gone down there. They've lasted just a few weeks and then they're gone into eternity because Florida can't deliver the fountain of youth. But look what God is saying. He can deliver it. He says, I will give you a drink freely from the water of life. Then he says, he who overcomes will inherit all this. What are they going to hear? That's what we're going to be learning about as we study about this heavenly Jerusalem. All this is this eternity, this beautiful city, dwelling with God, living with God. You're going to inherit all of this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son or my daughter. All of you ladies will be included as well. Isn't that an incredible thing? Now, what I've read to you so far is really, really good news, but then there's some bad news. There's those that don't ever get to drink from this water. There's those that miss out on this eternal drink. Look who misses out on it. But all those who are cowardly, all the yellow-bellied cowards, we're going to talk about what that means later on. What about the unbelieving? They're going to be excluded. It says the vile, those that, that enjoy abhorrible things, and this would be things that are vile to God, things that really turn God's stomach would be a good way of getting a handle on that. The murderers, obviously we would put them there. The sexually immoral, some of us in our culture wouldn't be so quick, but this is really serious stuff. These are the people that are excluded from drinking the water of life. It says those who practice the occult, those who practice the magical arts, all those that are involved in Wicca and all the paganism, they're going to be excluded. The idolaters, and that would be all that we've been wrestling with in the book of Revelation, those that worship the Antichrist, those that followed his false prophet, those in our own culture that follow the worship of pride and the worship of the secular city of Babylon. Now, in other words, that materialistic secularism that we've been looking at. And then all liars. Ugh, boy, that one hurts. All liars. They're all going to be excluded from this water of life. Where are they going to end up? It says their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. This is one of those unpolitically correct passages of Scripture. And what I want you to really get a hold of in your life is I didn't write this, and you can do what you decide to do with this passage. But I don't want anybody to hear what I'm saying to say, well, nobody ever told me that. Like, I don't want to get up into eternity someday and have you look at me and say, hey, Wurtzen, you are my pastor. You are the one that's supposed to teach me the word of God. And you let me walk right out into our secular culture. You let me believe a whole bunch of politically correct stuff and the idea that everything's relative and you can make up your own moral standards. You never told me then that the living God of the universe has really strict standards. And you never told me how to get a drink from this living water. I don't want anybody to ever be able to accuse me of that. So let's start out with a really, really good news. Let's talk about the one who's making all things new. He who was seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. How many of you like things that are new? Man, you get a new car. Don't you get excited about having a new car? I'll never forget when Mary went over to Sewell and, and uh, she had gone to one dealership and they saw her drive up at this other vehicle and they said, oh, this woman will never buy a Suburban. And so Mary went to another dealer and, man, I came home from doing something and there's this beautiful new Suburban in our driveway. 
I said, Mary, you know, what in the world? What is this? What is this Suburban? She said, oh, just one of the, one of the GM dealers said I could use it for a weekend. We've been using it ever since. If you're selling cars, that is the way to sell cars. Just let the man or woman drive that baby for a weekend. Man, you'll sell it. There was something incredible about the new leather seats and the new vehicle. Isn't that great? Don't you like new things? About new clothes. A bunch of the kids in the audience right here have gotten to go out to Kohl's and some of the other department stores, and you've been able to get new school clothes. And there's, there's just nothing like I'll never forget my mom and dad used to let my brother Ron and I, right after I got my license, I was only 16, and, and driving in New York, man, when you were 16 was a big, big deal. But my mom and dad actually let my brother Ron and I take their brand new Chrysler down to New Jersey to get our school clothes. And that was a big deal to go into the men's store all by ourselves and order all those new clothes. You know, the Lord's built you to like things that are new. But you know what I've noticed? Everything that I get that's new is only new for a few seconds. Our Suburban now, when I get into the front seat, man, the leather's worn because I have, you know, brushed my back end over that thing a million times. It begins to wear out and and Chuck Coates tells me, man, I don't know how much longer this engine's going to go because it's getting old. Everything does it. The stuff that you thought was such a beautiful, marvelous garment, a new piece of, you know, a new piece of cloth, a new shirt, a new dress, you wear it six months and then chuck it to the Salvation Army, right? Everything in this life wears out. What would you think if I could tell you that Revelation's promise on you that the Lord God of all heaven is going to make all things new. He's going to create a new heaven and new earth. He's going to create a new you, and you're going to be new forever and ever and ever. Have you ever thought of what eternity is? Eternity is forever new. That's what the book of Revelation is telling you. Revelation is telling us that eternity, the place that God has ordained for us, if you've received Christ in your heart, is going to be eternally new. In fact, in the book of Revelation, this idea of new things is one of the most important ideas you can ever see. God promised the church of Pergamum. This is one of those seven churches in the book of Revelation. God promised them that the true worshipers, those that truly believed in the Lord Jesus, he promised them that they would receive a new name they would receive a new name. If you believed in the Lord Jesus, then you have an eternal name that only God knows and you are God's special child. That's the idea. This new name is your heavenly family name as part of the family of God. Isn't that incredible? The moment you've received Christ in your life, God is promising you that he wrote a new name upon your character. You've received a new family name. Like, my family name is Wurtson. But the moment I believed in Jesus, my family name came to be Yahweh and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. I received the family name of the living God. Look at something else new that he promised the church of Philadelphia. The faithful in Philadelphia received the same promise of permanent residency in God's holy city. It said they would be christened with a new name. Their family name would be the divine name of the Father. The heavenly choirs, God really likes new things. Like we sang some new songs and all of our praise teams periodically introduced new songs. Why? Because the scripture tells us in Revelation that the choirs of heaven sing new songs. And one of the things I just really want you to begin to think about, the ideas in Revelation 5, for example, of the new song is like a new experience of God. 
In other words, what the choirs of heaven sing is they've gone through a new experience with God, a new opportunity with him, a new test with him. And what it's saying is that when they have that deeper intimacy with God, they sing a new song to express that. And I believe that forever and ever and ever, we're going to be learning more about God, learning more about his wondrous character, more about the incredible new heaven and new earth that he's going to give us. And we're going to be singing forever and ever. Part of that eternal praise is we're going to never exhaust the expressing to him the joy of all the new things that we're singing and that we're learning about him. And we'll express that in our songs to him. So the heavenly choirs sing a new song of praise of the Lord. The book closes. In fact, I could say that the word new is the theme word of Revelation 21 that we're studying right now. In Revelation 21, verse 1, it talked about the new heavenly Jerusalem. It talks about a new heaven and earth. In fact, the whole book is going to close by telling us that he is going to give us a new heaven and new earth and a new holy city. And all those who have a taste of the water of life are going to enjoy that forever and ever and ever. I just wanted you to get a taste for the idea that the Lord God of heaven loves all things that are new. That's why he's saying, I am making everything new. Now, when I make a promise like that to you, the next thing that really strikes me is how can I be sure that I can depend upon that? In other words, you might be sitting here saying, well, Dave, you know, man, that's like the old Christian doctrine, you know, heaven in the sweet by and by and in the sweet by and by and the sweet by and by. Oh, what a great day that's going to be. I just don't buy that stuff. What I want to challenge you to think about, you might be sitting there going, I'm not into this faith thing and I'm not into this believing thing and I'm not into this Jesus stuff and I'm not into this heaven stuff. Well, I want to share something with you. You are into something. Every one of you are into something. Every one of the friends at school, every one of your friends at university, every professor you ever hear, every, every big corporate executive you've ever meet, every doctor you ever meet, every single person that you ever come in contact with has an answer to the question. If I ask him, who are you really depending upon? Who do you believe? Everybody has to answer that question because everybody does. Every single one of you believe that somebody can be depended upon. Somebody's telling you the truth. And what I want to challenge you about, I want you to really think hard. I want you, first of all, to try to service in your mind, this person's telling me the truth. I want you to try to ask yourself, are you absolutely sure that this person is telling you the truth? For example, in just a minute, Jesus is going to say something like, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the beginning and the end. Well, some of you are going to go away to university. You'll be exposed to some scientists, and they'll say that this life is all there is. The material universe is all there is. And some of you are going to be tempted to just take this book and throw it out and say, well, I don't believe in the Bible's so Sunday schoolish and it's, it's only just basic, simple stuff. And now I'm into the real, exotic, exciting world of the university and this scientist is so smart. You need to ask yourself, I'm listening to a scientist. The scientist is making claims. How do I know for sure that they are faithful, which means that I can depend upon what they're saying? And that what they're telling me is true, that it will conform to reality. From the depths of my heart, as I read the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ has given me really good, strong reasons to believe that he is faithful. And that he can tell me about reality. In fact, it goes right on this passage. The living God of the universe begins to tell us. Look what he's saying. It says, this is trustworthy, this is true. And I can almost hear the Apostle John say, but Heavenly Father, how can I be absolutely sure that this is really true? 
How many of you think that the book of Revelation has told you some mind-boggling things? How many of you, as you capture this vision, just think of, of living in a land that everything's new forever and ever and ever. Think of a land there will be no more crying, no more death. Do you understand what the book of Revelation is telling us? That's one of the biggest questions that could ever be raised. Bobby right now has a brain tumor. From a medical standpoint, there's not a lot of good odds. There's not a lot of good opportunities. We're going to try to do chemotherapy, and, and hopefully if the tumor will shrink, we can zap it with gamma radiation. But I want to just share with you, I know for sure that a doctor would tell me, David, physically and medically, it doesn't look very good. And I want you to know that you're in a church family. We really believe that Jesus can erupt into a situation, and he can do powerful things. But I also want you to know that what we're reading in the book of Revelation, Jesus is promising us that no matter when it is, that we lose one of our loved ones, that our physical body gets struck down by a heart attack or it gets struck down in malignancy, you don't have to run away from that, brothers and sisters. You don't have to dodge into entertainment or dodge into alcohol or dodge into travel or dodge into something else, trying to get away from that horrible feeling inside. I want you to face the reality these things happen, and then I want you to go on. I don't want you to stay in negativism and fear. I want you to say, Lord... This is a shouting reminder that I'm not home yet. That the world is not the way your heart wants it to be. And Lord, I want you to use the present crisis that we're experiencing to give us a vision of heaven. What Revelation is promising us is that Jesus can deliver and one day, one day absolutely for sure, based upon the promise of Jesus, Virginia is going to dance and celebrate and rejoice and have no more MS. That's what Revelation has promised. She's going to have a new body. She's going to have a new eternal life, and she'll be brand new forever and ever. Do you believe that? That's what Revelation's saying. And you live in a culture that wants to say that that's not important. That that's just some old religious crutch, and that's some idea. What I want to get across in the book of Revelation, that's no crutch. That's the ultimate promise. That's the ultimate place. Disneyland is never going to do it for you. Disneyland would run out of its newness. If you went to Disneyland and stayed there for a year or two years, you'd want to you'd vomit out Mickey Mouse. Because it won't satisfy you. But you live in a culture that's trying to present a veneer of a new heavenly Jerusalem. And it wants to tell you. It wants to tell you that this life is all there is. For example, if you go to Disneyland, Chuck Colton in his book on how should we now live tells the story of a father that takes his daughter who's really wrestling with her faith, takes her to Disneyland. They go to one of the big exhibits and it comes on and it has this great cosmic ocean and this marvelous voice with beautiful, beautiful Disney music, probably written by John Williams, is, is bellering forth, and this voice comes out and says, and the oceans were existing. And then out of the ocean came the single cell. And the single cell began to multiply and, and develop and grow, and, and the whole idea began to be presented. 
It even had some other exhibits that could almost like, it, like you could actually experience the Big Bang and they'd have a flash of light and all this incredible cosmic wonder. And then you'd have the basic elementary particles, mesons and quarks, beginning just 10 to, a, to the minus 23rd seconds after the Big Bang and you start having these things coalesce. And Disney presents to you in glorious wonder about the beginning of the universe. And this father's interacting with his daughter. And his daughter is cold about the Bible. She's not into this Jesus thing like her mom and dad. And he begins to ask her, why is that so, honey? It's because it's been drilled into her mind. What do you need God for? What do you need God for? Because we can explain everything just the way they are. That is one of the most dastardly lies that you could ever, ever believe. Because Jesus is the one. You see, something that's really important and science can never give you the answer to this question. Like, I want minds, young minds in our church, and maybe some old minds. You want to change your career. I want some of the best physicists in the world to come out of our church. I want to get across to you that I love science. I want some of the best chemists. I want some of the best biologists. I want there to be astronomers that, that write astronomy for the glory of God, that they're the ones that make the latest discoveries. But I want to really share with you that secular, materialistic science, when it isolates itself from God, it cannot answer the really big question. Because Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. See what he says here? The reason you can depend upon him. See what he says right here? He says, I, you can depend upon me because I am the alpha. I'm the beginning of the alphabet and the end of the alphabet. So when all the words are in, it's going to be the revelation of Jesus that's the truth. Then he says, if you don't understand what that means, that I'm the A to Z, then I'm the beginning and I'm the end. And every single one of you believes something about how things began. And what I want you to understand, it's really important to know the one who was there in the beginning. Let me just give you a feel. Let's pretend that we're in a college classroom. I, I went to the University of Hertfordshire. It's one of the English universities, and it's on the Britannica website. And I actually got what an astronomer would teach us. I just thought I'd read to you about what they say about the beginning. And this is what you're going to get in a college classroom. It'll go like this. An astronomer will start an introduction to astronomy like this. If the universe is expanding, now hang with me, because remember, university astronomy classes are not entertaining. You know, you have to really put on your thinking cap, so stay with me. If the universe is expanding, does this mean that it was smaller in the past? Of course it does. Does it? In fact, mean that there was a time when the universe began. Space and time are believed. You probably aren't going to hear that in a college classroom. You might have that go right by you. But this astronomer is being honest. We believe. So he's stating... I don't know this absolutely for sure. And you always need to put that in your thinking cap. He says, it is believed, it is believed, space and time are believed to have been created in what astronomers call the Big Bang. Maybe that's where the Lord chose to begin things out. It was during this initial event that the universe and everything in its space, time, matter, and energy was created. It was during the Big Bang that the laws of physics were melded into their current shape and the forces of nature became what they are today. Two questions that people often ask are, what is space expanding into? And what happened before the Big Bang? These can easily be answered because if space was created during the Big Bang, and if it is space itself that is expanding, then it need not be expanding into anything. I know I lost all of you. Space is what is between objects. So if there's nothing outside the expanding balloon, the concept is meaningless. So what they're trying to tell you, they're, they're leaning you towards, don't worry about before there's the present universe, because there was nothing. 
all that they're saying is they define space as the distance between objects, but suppose that there's a being that's beyond all objects. Suppose there's a being that's bigger than space. In fact, right in what I just read to you, notice it says the laws of physics, the laws of science. In fact, there's another piece here later on. In fact, the whole article introduced things like this. The smallest particle in the largest galaxy, the universe is a place that follows rules. In other words, this entire discussion of astronomy says that everything is following rules. But they want to say that it all happened by sheer probability, by sheer chance. And nobody in the classroom has raised their hand so far and said, hey, wait a minute. Think everything I observe in life that happens by chance, by probabilities, it never followed any rule. My own bedroom at home that my mother's been yelling at me for a million times is a marvelous illustration of what happens when probability factors and chaos are able to rule. And my room doesn't follow rules. That's a philosophical question. How in the world do you have a finely tuned physical universe that follows rules? which is why the person can write like he does, and that's why you can have an introduction to astronomy. He also goes on to say that this time thing, as for time, before the Big Bang, the concept of before has no meaning because time itself did not exist until shortly after that initial event. The universe has been evolving ever since and will continue to do so. So you know what all of you young people were just told? There wasn't anything before the Big Bang, and the universe is just going to keep on evolving. And I would ask the question, sir, how do you know that? That's a statement of your faith, that the universe happened by accident. It will keep evolving by accident. All that I know about accidents is that accidents usually end up in collisions. How can you ever make those kind of a statements? And yet I know dear, young, powerful minds that will take the Bible and chuck it because of discussions like that. Young people and adults, I want to give you a much bigger vision. I have a God who's the beginning before there was a beginning, before there was space, before there was E equals MC squared, before there was time, he tells us that we're going to live in eternity forever and ever and ever. God is outside of time. That's been in the Bible from the beginning. In the beginning, God. That's a statement. That's how the Bible begins. So before there was any time, any energy, any mass, God. That's what I believe. In the beginning, my God was already there. And I want you to really understand that that's why I trust in him. Because good night, when all these masons and quarks go nutty, like every single one of you are a basket full of, of masons and quarks and, and nuclear little nuclei and then cells that develop in your little atoms. And all of you are, man, as I look at you, you're, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And yeah, you do follow physical processes. And evolution, want, materialistic secular evolution, wants to tell you that it just happened because of an explosion in a mattress factor. The reason I believe in the new heaven and new earth, the, one, the reason I believe in the vision of eternity, is because Jesus is the one who's the beginning. But you know what? He's also the end. You notice the astronomer said it's just going to go on forever and ever and ever. How do you know that? The Bible's declaring, the Bible's declaring that it's not going to go on forever and ever and ever. That there's going to be an end to it. That's what the book of Revelation's about. 
Why do you think the secular astronomer doesn't want to admit that there's going to be an end? Because if there's going to be an end, then you're going to be called to account. And morality isn't just up in the air. It's not just up for grabs. And that's what the book of Revelation wants to get across to you. The reason you can depend upon this book is it is giving you the very words of the one who was there in the beginning. And this book is claiming that he came to visit us in the person of his son. And he demonstrated his holy character. So if if you have questions about his reliability, you want to look at the character of Jesus. Study the character of Jesus. That is, that is open investigation for anyone that wants to. You can read the Gospels of the New Testament. You can study church history and read what people have believed and known about Jesus. And you can ask yourself, is Jesus a reliable, true source of reality? The book of Revelation, way back in the very beginning, was given these young men and women courage as they faced the brunt of a Roman emperor saying, listen, you can count on Jesus. He will prove to be reliable. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, this is really, really important. I want to understand that the one who drinks from the water of life and the overcomer are the same individual. Now, I know there's some, in fact, I was taught by some of my dear mentors, people that I really loved, they would teach us that there's kind of two groups in the family of God. There was one that come to Jesus, they receive the water of life freely, and they just kind of stay nominal. And then there's the overcomers, and they're the champions in the body of Christ. I want you to understand, if you look at the structure of this passage, it talks about those who are drinking the water of life, it jumps right away to their overcoming, and then it talks about those who are excluded. And the groups, and there's really just two gigantic groups in this, in this stuff here. You see, I want you to understand something. John the Apostle would not teach you, you can take a drink from the water of a life. Then just forget about this Jesus thing. Live any way you want to. You can obey anyone you want to. You can live just like Antichrist. But man, you received a drink. You're going to be safe forevermore. John's not going to ever teach you like that. In fact, John would be horrified that someone thought like that. Because in John's mind... To believe in Jesus, which is his, the symbol of that is to take a drink from the living water. In John's thinking, once you take a drink from the living water, it becomes a fountain that bubbles up into you, into eternal life. And it gives you a transformed life. If you have really drunk deeply from the fountain of living water, if you've really invited Jesus into your life, then as you live your life, you should see evidence of that living water. And that living water, Jesus living inside of you, enables you to become an overcomer, which means a victor over the laws of sin and death. You say, Dave, how do you know that there's this union? Well, let's look at what John says about the overcomer. I just, I just thought I'd look back and see every time that John the Apostle uses the overcomer. And I'm just going to put up one of the major ones. Look what John says back in his book. First of all, in John chapter 16... John tells us who the ultimate overcoming is. He says, these things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. In other words, in this present life, we're going to be suffering. We're going to have difficulties. But we can be of good cheer because Jesus has overcome the world. So the source of all of our overcoming is totally in Jesus. I want you to understand that. It's totally in Jesus. Now, how do we know that we're in on this overcoming? Over at 1 John, chapter 5, 
John closes his book, his little epistle, 1 John, with these words. It says, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Every single individual that's been born of God. John began his gospel. Those that are born again are born not just physically, not because of some human desire, but they're born from above. Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born of God, born from above, born a second time, he cannot receive the kingdom of God. So everyone that comes to Christ, they are born of God, and therefore they become an overcomer. They're able to escape from living just for this present world scene. They become overcome to the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Now that's a really key question. What is the victory that overcomes the force against us, the secularism and the, and the world system and the Antichrist and the dragon? It is your faith in Christ Jesus. Every one of you need to ask yourself, who are you depending upon this morning? Do you believe in the ultimate scientist that teaches you at the university? Do you believe in your boss? Do you believe in Wicca? Because those are all alternatives. Do you believe in Islam? Do you believe in Buddhism? Do you believe in reincarnation? Do you believe in all of these different things? Every one of you have someone or something you're depending upon. And what the book of Revelation is telling us, that the individual that puts their life dependence in Jesus, then they're going to be an overcomer. This is really real stuff. In my real honest-to-goodness life, I rushed to the hospital, and I had a husband come out and say, it's serious, it's really serious. But you know what? He wasn't just collapsing. Sure, it's tough. Sure, it's hard. And there were some friends, they weren't collapsing either. There were tears. It was hard. I hate it. I hate malignancy. I hate hospital rooms. I hate going to those places. But I want to share with you, I want you to get a hold of this. If you don't know Jesus, all around you, there are people that I've lived with for 27 years now, and they believe this stuff. They're just normal people, school teachers, principals, people that work for general dynamics and general you know, telephone and a million other, just normal people. But what I'm teaching about today, it's not just some religious thing they do on Sunday morning. They, in the depths of their being, believe that this is the gospel truth. And they are overcomers. They share with me about another friend that we all went through, Bud Turner. They share with me about when he had a brain tumor. And they talk to me about talking with Bud Turner. And Bud would actually, he would do this with me. He would say, Dave, I believed in Jesus. And he says, I don't want to spook you out or anything, but I want you to know that I can feel Jesus right here in this room. In fact, he's kind of told me that my life's going to kind of ease out right through my feet, and then I'm going to be right in the arms of Jesus. And Jesus has shown me, I like reading the Encyclopedia Britannica and the World Book, and I think Jesus is going to take forever and ever and ever exposing to me the new stuff that's going to be so exciting. And I want you to know, you shouldn't cry for me because I've already captured a little bit of a vision of what it's going to be like to be with Jesus. And we buried Buddy. He actually made the transition to eternity. This is real stuff. And I want to share from the depths of my being, those who have come to a personal faith and trust in Jesus, right here, they become overcomers. We're not talking about super saints, super people. You know, we're not talking about some special saintly class. We're not talking about the reverends and the clergy. Every single one of you are an overcomer 
if you've come to know Christ in a genuine, personal way, because he came to live inside of you, and I guarantee you, he's so strong, he's so powerful, he will enable you to keep having victory through the cross. It says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. It is our faith. Who is, who is it that overcomes the world? It is the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You say, well, Dave, well, who's going to miss? Who would ever want to miss out on this? And that's my question. Like, who would ever want to miss out on the new heavenly Jerusalem? Who would want to miss out on Jesus? You say, Dave, I'm really concerned about some of my friends. And I want to share these as we close today. Because a big question that hits me, and it's hit me through the years, God, I have some unbelieving friends. They reject Jesus. Some of them I try to get to come to church, and they hear about Jesus, and then they just turn away from him. God, will you deal fairly with them? Will you deal justly with that? And I want to share with you, God spells that exactly. I want to share you, God in the book of Revelation tells exactly the kind of people who will be in hell. Some of you think there will be really good people in hell. And I want to share with you that none of us are going to go to heaven because we're good in our own strength. We're going to go to heaven because of a gift of eternal life. But I want you to know that there will be no good people in hell. Because the Bible tells us exactly who's going to be in hell. Who are those excluded? Look what it says. It says right here, but the cowardly and the unbelieving. You know, you say, well, Dave, that's mean. That's really mean. I can't believe that God would send someone that's a little bit, you know, a little bit lax on their courage. No, this is serious business. There's some of you right here in the room. There's some young people right here in the room that haven't really made the decision for Jesus. You haven't really asked Jesus into your life. And if we really come down to brass tacks, I say, why don't you want to take Jesus into your life? And you'll say, because I'm afraid of what my friends will think. How many of you have ever heard someone say, I don't want to receive Jesus into my life because I'm afraid of what my friends think? You know what that is? That's being a coward. And that's very serious stuff because there's the ultimate person in the universe, the ultimate divine Lord. He loves you so much. And this is really sad. Like if I was recruiting you for the Marine Corps, they would not say to you, if you want to just return tail and run, you don't really need to be committed to your country. You don't really need to believe in the Constitution. Man, if you want to run like a yellow buddy coward, man, when we're in the crunch, go for it, man. I'll pat you on the back. I'll be running right behind you. The Marine Corps doesn't do that. If I was a Marine recruiter today, I would stand before you and say, we want a few good men and women. And the Marine Corps would be saying, you're going to do it in your own strength, but they would basically be telling you, We've got a constitution. We have one of the greatest lands in all the world. We have incredible freedoms. We've been defended from the halls of Montezuma. We have defended the sacred halls of American liberty. If you want to join an elite group, a point group, then step forward, brave, strong, committed to that great task of determining, of, of preserving American liberty. The Marine doesn't ask, doesn't baby you. You know what? John the Apostle was speaking to a bunch of guys and girls that had the whole Roman Empire trying to wipe them out. And they were just a little tiny group. And this just blows my mind because John the Apostle says, I will comfort you and God's going to wipe every tear from your eyes. But you know what John the Apostle says? God says, I don't want any of you to be cowards. And you are part of, you know Christ is your Savior. You're part of a family that down through the centuries, and right here in the 21st century, you're part of a family that has teenagers, it has young moms and young dads, it has men and women across the world that when people challenge them, will you deny Jesus 
and you can live or will you continue to believe in him and you're going to die and you're a part of an incredible family that makes the Marine Corps look like it has no special token on bravery because you're part of a body of Christ that has believed with courage and strength. And so what I'm saying is courage and faith go hand in hand. And I want to encourage you. My mom was always afraid, would she have courage when the day of battle comes, when the day of challenge comes? And I got news for you. If you know Christ as your Savior, if you really believed in him, then the Lord will give you courage in that day of crisis. But I want to get really across to you that we're talking about ultimate realities, like the realities of being willing to give your life for your country. Cowards are no part of the family of God. Those that reject Jesus because they're afraid. They're afraid of their friends, afraid of the crowd. They're going to miss it. It says the unbeliever, those that, are, that don't have faith. And we're going to have to go on here, the vile, the murder, say, who are these that we're going to go on? And we'll go on as we think about those that are excluded. You can look at it. And the next passage will give us a, a vision of the Holy Spirit. I want to just say to all of you, if any one of you are not sure that you have taken a drink from the fountain of the water of life, if you're not sure that you've tasted Jesus, it's an incredible statement. It says anybody that's thirsty, if anyone's thirsty, they can come and drink. So if you're sitting here saying, Dave, I came to church today because I'm thirsty. And as you've been talking, man, there's something inside of me saying, Jesus really is that fountain of living water. He really is the truth. I want you to know from the depths of my heart, if you're thirsty, then Jesus is asking you to freely, freely come and drink. Father, I thank you so much as we go on and study this book. Lord, it cuts right across some of our normal ideas, but it gives us incredible hope, incredible victory, incredible overcoming. But I thank you so much, Lord, as we study the book of Revelation today, that we can have absolute confidence that you're going to make all things new. And oh, Lord Jesus, we're thankful for the living water that we have in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.